Hello, everybody, and welcome back to our Bible study series on the book of Romans. If you have a Bible handy, I would love it if you opened up to the book of Romans, chapter 9. We are going to be starting in verse 30, and while you turn there, let's go ahead and talk a little bit of context here, because the last few verses of this chapter are extremely, extremely, extremely important for connecting and tying together the entirety of the book of Romans. But if we don't understand what St. Paul has been talking about for the past, oh, 29 verses, we're not going to understand why this particular passage is important. So for the past few weeks, we have been talking about how St. Paul weeps for his kin. He weeps for his fellow Hebrews because they are not accepting Jesus. Yes, there is a remnant who is, and that's a lot of them being in the Roman congregation, but the vast majority of them are not. And he's discussing some of the issues that the Hebrew Christians in the city of Rome are going to be having, like, what about our heritage? What about the Old Testament? What about the promises of God? And St. Paul is saying, well, God is going to have mercy on whoever he has mercy. And the offense that you might take to the Gentiles being permitted to be in Israel, being accepted, while a whole bunch of unbelieving Jews have been broken off from Israel, that shouldn't be something that you take offense at. Because God says he has mercy on whom he will have mercy. He is going to accomplish his word, his promises, by hook or by crook. Whichever way he wants to do it, and we are not to complain. And he does compare the situation a little bit to Jacob and Esau. The older shall serve the younger, and so forth. With that said, though, now with these next few verses, he is going to tie this situation between Gentiles and Hebrews, and he's going to connect it to everything he said in the previous eight chapters. So let's go ahead and start in verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So this ties in eight previous chapters where St. Paul is going over soteriology. He's going over the current issues of why we need Christ, why he is so, so, so important. In what we do now that we are believers in Jesus. He is connecting that to the question of, well, what do you do with all of these people who are physically descended from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob with the political or familial blood nation of Israel? So he says here, what shall we say then? That is, given everything he said for the past 29 verses, Well, in conclusion, the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. We've gone over justification. 
Somebody who believes in Jesus, who trusts in Jesus for his salvation, trusts in the Christ that died for us and rose again, that individual is declared righteous or justified by their faith and by their faith alone. St. Paul does not say that the Gentiles uh, pursued righteousness and then obtained it. No, he says they didn't even pursue righteousness. Even though the law is written on their hearts, as we covered in Romans chapter 2, even though it's written on their hearts, it is not in their minds. They are not going to be seeking the law of Moses, seeking to obey all these strictures and commandments there. Nor did they even really try to, to fit everything into righteousness. They honestly didn't. The history of Gentiles world over has been seeking, well, well-being, power, the kind of things people usually seek anyway. Occasionally you get a teacher like Socrates or maybe even a Siddhartha who claims to be seeking some sort of good life, some sort of virtuous life to live, but those are framed as a, well, something of a quid pro quo. If you do this, then you're going to live the good life. You will be a happier man as a wise man. You're going to have X, Y, or Z good thing. In the case of Buddhism, it's escaping samsara. It's achieving enlightenment. In Socrates' case, it's, uh, well, potentially being one of these philosopher kings. Or if he did truly believe in reincarnation or transmigration of the soul, then it's getting a better one this time around and maybe being a philosopher king. There is a worldly sense to ancient Gentilic religions and ethics. You don't follow Zeus because it's the right thing to do. You follow Zeus because he's the biggest, strongest god around, and he gives you what you want if you pop in enough quarters into the altar or whatever. So the Gentiles did not pursue righteousness. And they did not attain righteousness by their works. This is St. Paul connecting righteousness by faith, justification by faith, to the entrance of the Gentiles into Israel. And this has to be faith alone. Like I said, they were not seeking righteousness and they did not attain righteousness through works. And they did not attain righteousness through faith plus works. St. Paul declares them righteous by faith. They have attained this righteousness by faith. He doesn't add anything to it. But in verse 31, he says, Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. So, ancient Israel, and even the ancient Israel that persisted up until the birth, death, and resurrection of Christ, they were seeking the law. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that they were seeking righteousness by the law. It says Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why is that important? Because he's giving the breathing room that Various people have various motivations for seeking the law. Some people with what they call the quote-unquote new perspective on Paul 
They'll say, uh, not every Jewish religious document proclaims salvation or righteousness by pursuit of the law. <laughs> Some of the stuff they write about seems a lot like uh, following the law out of thankfulness or gratefulness. Uh, kind of like you Lutherans' third use of the law. St. Paul is giving that breathing room. Some people do, in fact, follow after the law for selfish reasons. If the law promises blessing for those who keep it, I'm sure there are many people who decide in the greediness of their heart that that is the thing they're truly pursuing. Blessing, not God. Or blessing, not righteousness. And yes, there were Jewish individuals who were following the law as though they could earn their eternal life. After all, the law does say, whoever does these things shall live by them. This was a common understanding. But then there were others who were seeking the law to find secret messages in them for various mystical purposes. A lot of Kabbalah involves doing gematria or trying to find secret words and secret numbers with hidden messages and things like that to get spiritual truth so they can seek enlightenment, so they could seek the law there. And there's any number of motivations you might have for seeking God's law. That's what I'm getting at here. But St. Paul does say, even though, yeah, they pursued the law for whatever reason, it is a law of righteousness. In the Greek, it literally says a law of righteousness, not necessarily a law that would lead to righteousness. The law is righteous. The law is correct. So, in theory, if you follow the law that says this is what righteous people do, then you should be righteous if you follow it. But then he says they did not succeed in reaching that law in verse 31. No matter how much they pursued it, the law is unsatisfiable by normal human beings. No matter what you do, everybody is, well, enslaved, doomed under sin in their natural state. We went over this in Romans 1, 2, and 3. Those three chapters together bind everybody that ever lived underneath the law, saying they are guilty, with the one exception being our Lord Christ. People really need to know, without faith, it is impossible to please God. God's righteous requirements are unpleasable. This has been noticed before, by the way, in the Old Testament. Here is from Micah chapter 6, starting in verse 6. What does Micah say? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What's Micah saying there? Speaking on behalf of Israel, he looks at God and says, this is their complaint. You're unpleasable. There is no pleasing you. There is no amount of sacrifice. There is no amount of dedication. I could kill my kid and you wouldn't be happy with me. You're never happy with us. And what does God say in verse 8? Now, this is a supposed life verse for a lot of people. They don't quite understand what that means, though. In verse 8 of Micah 6, it says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? 
Oh my goodness, so many people go, ha, see, that's God reassuring them. I'm, I'm not unpleasable. I mean, it's pretty simple, right? Just do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with me. That's, that's it. It's so easy. <laughs> no, that's even harder than all the sacrifices and stuff. Here God is saying, well, no, you don't understand it. It's not just about your ceremonial stuff that I commanded in Leviticus. It's also that you need to have a perfect character. God points the finger back at the Israelites and says, you think I'm unpleasable because of the sacrificial system? No, you don't understand. I'm unpleasable because you are unrighteous. Oh, you don't know what to do? Here's what to do. Do what's right. Love mercy and kindness and peace and be devoted to me. There you go. That's your entire life. But also don't neglect those sacrifices. Obviously, those were commanded. God lays an even heavier burden on these people who don't know how to please him. And in the next verses, in case anybody wants to say, oh, no, no, no. Micah was making it easier on the people. The next verses in Micah chapter 6 are more condemnations. It becomes evident that you just can't please God through the law. You cannot do this by yourself. You cannot make God happy. As St. Paul has said over and over and over again, we are bound by our sins. We are ugly. We are unrighteous. The entirety of humanity is condemned. So we turn back to Romans chapter 9. And at this point, he probably feels like it's necessary for him to explain himself a little. In verse 32, he says, Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. So what's he getting at? Is it wrong to pursue the law? No, not at all. St. Paul spent the entirety of chapter 6 saying, here is why we're not about sinning willy-nilly. It's a good thing to pursue obedience to God's commandments. But the fatal flaw, the fatal, fatal flaw that everybody was making at this time, all the Jews during that first century, all of them that didn't believe in Jesus, they were pursuing the law without putting any faith in God. And by this, I mean they weren't putting faith in Jesus. They weren't trusting in God to save them. They were trusting in their ability to obey this law. Now at the time, yes, there was in development various theories on soteriology that as the chosen people, they were kind of automatically saved, but they needed to still pursue the law. Or alternatively, the Qumran community and the Essenes held to this idea that you were only saved if God chose that you would be saved, and that was how you were regenerated. It's all about election and eternal decrees. That's Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls, another series that is on our very Lutheran project, SoundCloud. There were also thoughts and ideas regarding salvation by works righteousness. That is clear, otherwise St. Paul wouldn't talk about it in other chapters. And there were also parties like the Sadducees who didn't care about the afterlife. They didn't believe in a resurrection. What they cared about was obedience to the law for the law's sake and, well, avoiding God's wrath. Either way, whatever the motivation, none of these people were just seeking God's salvation by his grace on us. Nobody was just saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Nobody was saying, as King David does, I am yours, 
save me. He says that in the Psalms. At this time, everybody is just about the law in one way, shape, or form, or another. And again, there is nothing wrong and everything right with seeking obedience to God's commandments, the Ten Commandments and the two greatest commandments. There is absolutely everything right and nothing wrong with seeking to obey the apostles and our Lord Jesus. But if it is not in faith, it is pointless. It is totally worthless insofar as it regards your relationship with God. Because you're not obeying God because he loves you, because he saved you. You're not obeying God out of any personal relationship with him. You're treating him as a vending machine or a genie or some wrathful monster that just says he's going to squish you if you do wrong and then won't do anything for you if you do right. So St. Paul is saying here that they failed at pursuing the law. They could not even reach the law, let alone the righteousness that might theoretically be by the law, because they did not see this as a matter of faith. Now, you might say, well, what if somebody just perfectly obeyed the law? They just did all of the requirements there. Well, good for them. That still is not going to save them. In theory, you could perfectly obey all of these laws and do everything they tell you to do. But without faith in Christ, not only are you still damned because your original sin has tainted you, but in addition to this, you're not pursuing God himself. You are pursuing the law, and the law points to your need for a savior. You have not attained the law just by obeying its commandments. The law tells you you are a sinner. It tells you you need Christ. And if you don't have Christ, it doesn't matter how perfectly you obey that law. You're still going to hell. You are still under the ban. This is one of the biggest, 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 fattest reasons that when the people of Israel were in front of Joshua and he says, well, can you really keep this? They say, oh yeah, we, to we got it. I got this. We could totally do this. In Joshua chapter 24, in verse 16, after Joshua says, all right, fear God, serve him, put away all these other gods you have, the people answered, verse 16, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods, for it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who did those great signs in our sight, and preserved us all in the way that we went, and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. Notice here, the people say, we also will serve the Lord for he is our God. And Joshua says, no, you're not. You're not gonna. You can't do this. <laughs> and the people said, uh, yeah, we can. Now, in theory, yes, you can. You have a mouth. 
So therefore you have every capability of only speaking truthfully, of never bearing false witness. You have hands, you are more than capable of not stealing and instead giving to the poor. You have sexual organs, you are more than capable of joining with your wife and no one else. You are, in theory, very capable. They're thinking on this hypothetical line of, yeah, that's what we're going to do. We could do this. We got this. But you can't. And even if you could, notice how they are going. We will serve our God, not we will put our trust in him. So ever since Joshua, and since far before Joshua 24, these people have always been saying, oh, I will obey, I will obey, I will obey, I will do this and that. And whether or not it's out of gratitude for something he did, or whether it's out of a sense of earning God's favor and his salvation, none of them said, hey, no, I am a poor, miserable sinner. I want to trust in the Lord for my salvation, and I want to obey him. Lord, have mercy on me. None of them would say that. Instead, it was always, Either I have sinned, but I can do a sacrifice, or, hey, no, I'm following God's law. I am blameless. They're not trusting in him. They're not putting their faith in him. Very, very, very few examples of people with real faith here in the Old Testament. The list we have in Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, so to speak, it's pretty short compared to the amount of personages that are actually in the Old Testament. Very few people cared enough to put their faith in God. Now again, I will always tell you that no, you cannot actually fulfill the law. You are not actually capable of obeying it perfectly as the law requires. And well, here in Joshua, as all these people are saying, they're going to serve God, they're going to serve God, they're going to obey the law and everything. <laughs> After uh, Joshua tests them and everything, he says in verse 23, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you, and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. He points out that they still have foreign gods there. They still have an idol problem. They still have these little statues and teraphim and everything like that that they are not getting rid of. And they don't even tell Joshua, oh my goodness, we've sinned, therefore we need to get rid of these idols here and rededicate ourselves to the Lord and ask for his forgiveness. They just kind of sidestep what Joshua says. Joshua says, you have a bunch of little gods here. How on earth can you say that you're going to serve God, let alone put your faith in him? <laughs> the scene is ridiculous. But that's the problem. And it's a problem that they had for centuries over a millennium, St. Paul says, they've stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So no matter how much Jesus is proclaimed, if there is a people that is stubbornly holding on to their works, they are stubbornly holding on to the law, they are so dead set on earning their place before God, well, they're going to stumble. They're going to break. Jesus is that stumbling stone, a rock of offense, because he says, just trust me. Trust me for your salvation. I will take care of this. Your righteousness that's kind of orthogonal to your salvation, it's 
It's an important thing to be obedient, but let me be your righteousness. And for a people that had spent so much time trying to be righteous by the law or just serve God for its own sake, they're not actually putting their trust in him. It's a scandal. It's the greatest scandal for them to say that, no, none of this stuff you've been working for really matters to God. You need to put your faith in him. You need to trust him. They could not countenance that very idea, so they rejected him. It was the scandal, as I said. So St. Paul here is explaining this dynamic between the gospel, which saves, and how the Gentiles were just putting their faith in Jesus, and the law, which does not save, which the Hebrews of St. Paul's day were going after and not achieving anything with. That's the dynamic. That's the explanation. That's tying everything together. So these last few verses of Romans chapter 9 deserve that special attention. Next week, we will get into chapter 10, and we're going to start, oh boy, getting into more details on that. But I think we may just be in a pause for the anger arc. We'll have to see. Somebody might get scandalized by Romans chapter 10. We'll find out. <laughs> Until then, I know it's short, but expect a longer episode next week. Amen and amen.